Welcome to Fintech Insider Insights, brought to you by 11FS, a challenger consultancy who help banks launch truly digital propositions. We're recording live from our offices in WeWork Oldgate Tower, and we've got a great show lined up for you today. Banks across Europe are bracing themselves for new regulations that come into effect in 2018 that force them to open up APIs, machine-to-machine interfaces that mean customers will be able to sign up to services that work on their behalf. In this age of the internet, there are very few topics you can stand in a bar with and disagree uh, with fellow bankers and fintechs about, but PSD2 and open banking is one of those. There's so many opinions, so much information, so, so much out there that actually anyone you ask about this subject seems to just give you a different answer. So today's show, we're going to talk to people who know, people who are deeply involved and really trying to dive beneath the surface to talk about whether this will actually change the UK and European banking landscape. So let's do some introductions. First up, Gavin Littlejohn. Hey, Gavin. Hi, how are you doing, Jason? I'm good. Do you want to give people just a a couple of minutes of of who you are and where you're from? Yeah, so um, I chair the Financial Data and Technology Association that led the campaign for open banking. And prior to that, I've been a fintech entrepreneur with a number of different businesses, including Money Dashboard, which is one of the companies in the live market that uses the same data that you get through the new regulations in the unregulated space. Wow, and you've been involved with the implementation entity that are sort of bringing open banking uh, into effect in the UK as well, is that right? Yes, I'm on the uh, steering grip of open banking, representing the fintech market and uh, trying to play a role in coordinating the evolution of standards around the world. That's great. So I guess moving on to fintech, Mike Kelly. Hey, Mike. Hi, Jason. How's it going? I'm good. I'm good. Why don't you give give people a a flavour of where you're from and what you're doing now? Cool. So uh, my name is Mike Kelly. I'm the founder and CEO of Curl. Uh, Curl is a completely new method of payment that's designed around usernames and instant bank transfers. Um, obviously, we're really, really involved in what's been happening around PSD2 and open banking. Uh, my background actually is as a software engineer, which is where I met you, Jason, actually, in the first instance. Yeah, uh, starting days. Exactly. So um, I've been working with um, startups and challenger banks on their API strategy. Uh, I'm also a member of the Open Banking Working Group, actually, which was the uh, original sort of group that put together uh, the standards that, that were put into force by the CMA. Um, and so I've been involved, you could say, in open banking since day dot, I think. Day dot. Wow, that is going back. <laughs> so next up, uh, Anita. Hey. Jason. Anita Kimber, tell us, tell us about where you're from. So Anita Kimber, I'm uh, head of open banking and innovation at Nationwide. And I can honestly say that open banking has brought me into industry. So a career in consulting and most recently in Australia, and I've obviously come back to the UK for the weather, um, not. Um, but, but heavily involved in the fintech space, in the startup space, advising clients across Asia PAC, but looking at what was happening in open banking in the UK and the opportunities it presents for consumers actually made me make the decision to come into industry and really help make it happen. Wow, there you go brought you back from Australia that must have been quite a pull how sad am I it's all about open banking (laughs) and last but not least Matt Cox hey Matt thank you hello why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're from so for the last two years I've been uh, leading insight and innovation for Nationwide Um, unsurprisingly most of that now is focused on what we can do for the opportunities from open banking just like the fintechs um, effectively Um, my background prior to that has been all things retail and digital so going right back to internet banking, mobile banking, digital payments, pretty much anything that's happened in that space I've had something to do with. Um, so from my perspective, open banking is is a gift. Wow. Okay. So we've got uh, people involved in the implementation of it. We've got large industry players. We've got new fintech. We've got everyone we need. So we've got an international audience. We need to catch some people and bring some people up to speed with where we are. If you're going to explain open banking, PSD2, the implementation entity, and all these crazy acronyms to someone who doesn't know what's going on, like where do you start, Gavin? Well, I think the first thing to do is to wind the clock back to DOT. Um, So we've had companies that have been involved in payments and in account aggregation, which are the two new... uh, the two artefacts of of, uh, open banking, if you like. 
Um, they've been operating in, uh, starting in the US since uh, late 90s. First of all, we had the banks adopt way before the fintechs. And then we had from the uh, mid noughties a number of fintechs start to adopt and utilize this. And now we wind the clock forward to now. Um, whereas in the US market, there are um, tens of millions of people using the transactional data sets that we get through open banking. They have uh, managed to get themselves tied in a bit of bilateral sort of relationships and uh, regulatory issues which they're trying to figure out how to move past now. In Europe, we don't have the adoption, but we've now got the regulatory stuff sorted out to enable the movement to standards. One thing I do want to pick you up on though, PSD2 does not mention APIs, unfortunately. And the issue that we've had with the Payment Services Directive is that um, it allowed for such a multitude of things to emerge from it because it viewed the direction into the technology space as being in the competitive space. But actually the industry, the regulator, the uh, insurance and liability model Everything demands that we move towards consistent standards to make it easier for companies. Just plain old interoperability is what we're seeking. And uh, so in the UK, we've had the open banking implementation entity sit and lean over the payment services directive to try to address some of these standards. And basically, the nine largest banks in the UK have been told to go first. And that includes our good friends at Nationwide. They'll tell us their side of the story. But in effect, there is a team of people working. The APIs are now designed. The technical appraisal of that by the tech community is that they have been beautifully prepared. Although we still have some things to address in policy and liability, which we'll come on to later on. So I guess if I can unpack some of that, I, what I'm hearing you say is that in the US, you had tens of millions of people using Mint and all of those sort of account aggregation, personal financial management services, but they weren't using APIs. They were... Some of it came through API. Okay. Some of it came through credential sharing through to screen scraping. And uh, there's been a real mix of different things. But, but eff- effectively, from about 2002 to 2003, there's been quite significant coverage of the data you could access through various companies that played the role in the middle between the banks joining the dots. So you've got the EYZs and the Yodleys and the people who then made a business of being that, that information edge. broker in yes, the middle. exactly. So, uh, and they, they played the role of... Uh, enabling all the use cases and what happened here was we started to show why the use cases were important to customers Mm -hmm. and the regulator and particularly the UK Treasury then stepped in and said okay well we know that humans in the UK aren't able to access face-to-face financial advice so how are we going to serve them right well one of the ways to serve them is through enabling them through technology and applications but you can't sell financial products unless you have a reasonably good picture of the person that you're selling to. So you have to start to stitch together their financial life to make it possible for the customer and the financial services company to interoperate online. So I guess handing uh, over to Nationwide, who are part of the CMA9, and I know you don't speak for Nationwide as a whole, but just sort of, I guess, from your view, uh, Anita, where does this... um, you know, uh, is this a good thing? Is open banking and forcing these APIs, you know, a good thing for consumers? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt in our mind, Jason, as you know, that we we, we see it as a good thing. We see it as a, an opportunity for our members. What Gavin talks about, I think, is really important. It is a coming together of the standards. It's doing it in a way, um, certainly in the UK, that that combines that with safety and security, which is really, really important for consumers. But but it's all underpinned by a belief system, isn't it? It's a belief system that um, a consumer's data is a consumer's data, and they should be able to do with that what they will and we've talked to our members a lot about this and when you bring open banking to life for them um, 
what they see is the opportunity for them to plan, to budget, to, to actually manage their finances on a day-to-day basis in a way that is better for them. So absolutely, we see it as a good thing. So we're moving away from this screen scraping, from arguably there being players with uh, with point-to-point APIs or screen scraping technology to grab this data towards an industry that's going to be delivering this. Uh, that sounds like a lot of work, a lot of expense for, on some big mainframes and thousands of systems. Like, what's the roadmap to, to get there? Well, I think the... Um so the first point is that the actual connections between the parties in open banking are between the bank and, let's say, the fintech. Um, alongside that, we have a directory function. And the directory is tuned to the regulator so that it knows which companies are allowed to be on it. But once you have the directory permission and you're able to connect up using OAuth2, OpenID Connect, you get your token, you connect to the bank. The only thing that you then need is the consent of the customer. And everything, as Anita said, is driven by that customer empowered with their data. So at that point, the bank, you know, in the bank role, can't deny the data being sent over to the fintech because they're regulated and they have the authority under PSD2 to get the data. What's happened to date is, you know, we've been muddling along in the unregulated space with different parties unsure about their position and liability, whose data it was. And I think the regulations have done a terrific role in starting to tidy up some of that ambiguity. Now we've just got to tidy up the liability model to to the final degree and then we're off. So I guess that brings us to fintech. And Mike, you know, your your business and the ability now to act on behalf of that consumer to do some interesting things. So I think uh, the discussion has been quite interesting so far in that it's focused primarily on talking about the data. And I think the data ultimately, as Gavin rightly pointed out, actually has been available for many years now uh, through service providers such as Yodly. Um, and I think that some of the use cases um, that, that people tend to be focusing on around open banking at the moment tend to be around the data. And that's actually something that's already been possible um, for a while through some of the screen scraping technologies. So um, s- some of the use cases, uh, some of the customer experiences, uh, such as the ones that we're focusing on at Curl, are actually more around um, sort of products and experiences that previously were impossible. So an example of that is the movement of money. So screen scraping is actually very bad for the movement of money. Uh, for the primary reason for that is because you're encouraging customers to violate their terms of service with their bank. Uh, but also from a third party's point of view, if we instruct payments, if we forget about the fact that we're encouraging customers to violate their terms of service, so we put that to one side for a second uh, and just focus on the idea that us as a third party uh, would have uh, no sort of uh, a strong liability framework to work with. So that if there was an issue of fraud, uh, the liability would be um, spread around and there would be a, a, a large sort of negotiation in terms of deciding who is responsible. So one of the most important parts of open banking for us is, first of all, that it, it provides us with that interface to be able to instruct the payments reliably, uh, but also that it establishes a kind of uh, liability framework. And as Gavin mentioned, uh, there's a directory. Uh, that directory in sort of technical terms basically means that the messages that we send to the banks are signed using a private key that as a third party only we have access to and therefore there's a situation that's referred to as non-repudiation which essentially just means if the bank gets a message from us there's cryptographic proof uh, that we issued it and from both sides of the um, both sides of the coin that's a good position to be in so ultimately um, this leaves us in a situation where uh, we're actually able to build these payment experiences and for the first time ever it's possible to build a consumer payment network uh, that completely removes the need for the card rails altogether and that has a huge number of benefits uh, not only for small medium-sized businesses but also for the end consumer as well. So Matt you've been involved in lots of uh, payments projects lots of API work you know for me this seems like PSD2 open banking the technology piece is a pretty small piece of the the entire picture because when you look at liabilities and customer experiences and the relationship and the agreements that are in place it seems like there's a lot in there you know uh, from from I guess the work nationwide's looking at how much of this is technology and how much of it is like the rest of the business um, f- for me most of it is not technology actually um, the technology is really really important and 
Mike, you make some really important points around previously this was read-only solutions provided by third parties. They're interesting. They've not been particularly successful in, in, in my view. Going forward, allowing the free movement of money in a secure way, but also the fact that we've now got a mature API ecosystem for other things, which means we can connect to do things that are really important. Like any innovation, these things only take off if they meet some kind of unmet need that individuals have got when they're managing their money day to day, when they're planning for a home or when they have big life events. The real power of this is where we can partner to do things that we couldn't do before because not only have we got the data, we've got the ability to move money, but we've got the ability to build solutions really, really quickly, partnering with the right people to provide the right solutions. Underpinning all of this is trust and whether people decide to trust both the solutions that become available through sharing of data, the providers that are fronting those solutions. Um, that's where the, the rubber hits the road for me. That's what makes this really interesting. Mm. So there's, there's, I've heard a lot of talk of partnering recently. I think a few years ago, everyone was talking about the fintechs that are going to take down the banks and building societies. And there's a, a lot more talk recently of you know banks and building societies having millions of customers in distribution partnering with small fintechs to really bring those solutions alive. Is, is that the way you see it? Yes. Yeah, so, so for me... Um, Lots of talk that we've seen over a few years has really been completely about digital disintermediation and digital-only providers taking over the world. For me, that was never, ever going to be the case. Why why do I say that? Well, because um, you'd have to make the assumption that the role of human service has gone away, and I don't think the evidence is there that that's the case. So to bring that to life, we've recently launched a new current account proposition um, back end of last year, Um, We've got a great online process for that, yet over half of those accounts around 18 to 21-year-olds are opened in our branches. Well, why is that? Because they want the human interaction that takes the complexity away from financial products and financial services. The average 18-year-old doesn't have a clue what a direct debit, a standing order is, a faster payment is, nor do they care. They need help and guidance in working through that complexity. I think that's where the potential comes in for leading digital services where we take the best of what's available in the marketplace combining that with human service that we can offer through our physical and our digital channels is where i think there you get real potential so i guess i can pass over to anita about and and there is this point of threat or or opportunity for established players it obviously changes the market significantly now how do you see it playing out So it would be naive to ignore the threat. It would be naive not to understand that if we step back and do nothing and don't serve our members in the way that they deserve to be served, then it is a threat that people like Mike, people like Gavin, who've got really bright ideas, then they're going to take market share. I think that the value comes from our perspective, and, and it's to your point, Jason, around partnering. The value comes from our perspective when you actually just put the consumer, in our case the member, at the centre and say, how can we do something together that actually enhances the experience for them, whether that's creating and Matt talked about the home you know we're a building society we're we're founded on uh, making it easier for people to um, either own their own home rent their own home well what are all the services that surround that and you get really smart fintechs or other providers um, accessible through APIs you pull all of that together and you start creating real value for your members so both if we ignore it it's a threat we're choosing not to ignore it. I know we've spoken before about APIs being again less about the technology and more about the end-to-end journeys that are then made possible that whether it's a home buying journey from working out whether you can afford something through to selecting a house eventually getting a mortgage it's actually the APIs that connect all of those players together that I guess make make those things possible Uh, are you connect uh, I guess looking at the fintech side of things Mike do you see connecting with established retailers, banks, whoever, like part, like necessary for the success of your business? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, um, our hub business model is is sort of predicated on that. So actually, we, we don't want to bank people. We don't want to be a bank. So I think that one of the interesting things that's happening at the moment is 
Uh, there's a lot of sort of talk of risk to the banks. But fundamentally, I mean, a, a large part of a bank's revenue stream is net interest margin, which is deposits and lending. And unless you have a banking license, you can't engage in that practice. So I think the idea that banks are going to go away because there's going to be a customer experience layer sort of disintermediating, disintermediating them is a bit naive in, in some sense, because ultimately someone will have to bank those accounts. Um, so I think the question is, wh where will those accounts go? I think it's possible that... Um, that banks that are providing uh, services to fintechs, uh, essentially agency banking, but with a sort of better API than was previously possible, uh, I think those banks may become more interesting in this space. But ultimately, do I think that banks will go away? No, I don't. Uh, I think actually, ultimately, we could actually bring more business. So one example of that actually might be the way that we approach credit. So on the curl network, for example, if you're at the point of sale, uh, one of the features that we're looking at adding over the course of the next sort of six to 12 months is uh, pay by installment. Uh, so this is similar to a credit card, except that the line of credit is provided at the point of need. Um, so from a bank's point of view, this is quite interesting because one, it's a new credit product. So this is a, a new product for them to offer their customers. But also it's more interesting from a sort of balance sheet point of view. So instead of with a traditional credit card where you provide somebody a line of credit, say 10K on a credit card, that, that, that credit would sit dormant and it would sit on the bank's balance sheet. Whereas in this instance, the bank's actually able to effectively provide that line of credit on demand, which means their balance sheet can become a lot more efficient uh, and actually it's better for their business overall. So um, we're very interested in, in working with the banks because they're good at banking and un fundamentally we, we don't really want to focus on that. So we don't really see ourselves as sort of as being in the financial market. I see us as being in the retail industry. So we're a retail payments proposition. And um, to be fair, there are some risks around um, the sort of transactional model. So this is, you know, interchange fees. Uh, fundamentally, my belief is over the next 20 to 30 years that uh, the transactional model will die. Um, but I think the banks that don't accept that and that don't restructure their business models will suffer long term. But I think that brings up a really interesting point that it is about the intermediation of services over commodity products and whether banks and building societies do that themselves or new players come in to fit that territory. There's still, you know, banking as a commodity product, managing the money, you know, getting the best net interest margin and arguably being a low cost provider combined with that that layer, that intelligent services rather than access to an account. So absolutely. And I think um, it's been a fairly commoditized product for a while. I don't think that's anything new. Um, I think there will definitely be a competitive element in terms of the banks providing the most connected bank account. So the bank account that's the most seamlessly connected with the third parties that you want to integrate with. And I think a lot of the challenges are actually proactively sort of entering this space, uh, despite the regulation not actually compelling them to right now. Uh, and I think um, that, that's actually one of the most interesting areas at the moment for me is that there's actually players who are regulated banks who are proactively engaging uh, in this open banking stuff. And I think there's also competitive pressure as well as regulatory pressure on the incumbents. So, yeah, from, from a banking perspective, um, well, firstly, you get the opportunity to see where your customers are when they're not with you. And who, from a marketing perspective, doesn't want to know that, right? There's a, a lens into how humans behave with their money through all the relationships they have, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the One of the interesting use cases that's emerging and has actually probably become the prevalent use case for uh, open banking from the data perspective rather than the payments is how it's used in assessing affordability in lending. Because if you have a full picture of the customer, you have an up-to-date, day-in-daily, uh, accurate picture of how they earn and how they spend. And you see the pattern through time. And there's a lot of companies that are starting to understand how to use that data to make more informed, accurate, versatile credit decisions that aren't based on historical, out-of-date, what once happened to them when they lost their job information. Now you can actually look at the real individual and what's happening up to date. And the data's, you know, as old as last minute, right? So now you're in a position where you can see the true picture. And I think that's a terrific opportunity for financial services to better meet customer needs. And and your point is is incredibly well made. It's it's not just 
looking at that data and and obviously using it for um, making the right credit risk decisions from our perspective, but also helping those people. So um, in our case, when when they've got a home or they've got a home they're aspiring to, you can actually help them proactively in how they budget. And you can use real data with real connectivity to, to help them live better lives. So the richness of data opens up so many possibilities. And do you see in that, Anita, a role at any point where you will go the next stage down the channel of open banking and sell other people's products? Um, it's obviously something that all of us across the industry are exploring. We're all aware of the fact that um, there are lots of business models that could emerge here. And I think the clue is in the title. It's called Open. Um, and I think we all need to be open to where this might go. Um, for for us, in the first instance, it's about being out there, being in the market, being active and understanding what our members want and then responding to that. So from our perspective, we're open to lots of ideas right now, but haven't made any decisions around that yet. Jason, the macro trend you talked about with open banking was around the opportunity to move towards the end-to-end customer journeys, the intent of what they're trying to do. So, you know, customers typically don't think, I'm going to go and get a mortgage. They're moving home. So as open banking through open data and movements and a broader API ecosystem starts to mean we can all gather around the journey, the intent of moving home, I don't think it's logical for any one provider to provide all of the services that are related to the intent of moving home. It starts two years before they apply for a mortgage when they're planning their finances and their savings and they're starting to think how they can save money and it ends six, nine months after they've moved in and they've redecorated and they've sorted their utilities out. I think the the roles and the relationship needs to be thought through in terms of what role do we want to take across that intent. That's where the partnerships and the selling of other people's products possibly, I think, starts to become more meaningful. Definitely, because there's there are sort of pipe services platforms. There's the the underlying infrastructure of what you're delivering. There are these really interesting intelligent services you can build on top of those things. But string those together, you know, string of pearls, and suddenly you get that end-to-end journey. Whatever that end-to-end journey is, you know, whether it's from. Uh, you know, booking a holiday or uh, or buying a home. I, I often use um, Uber as a, as a great example of an API-based business. Whatever you think of them for a variety of other reasons, the fact that they use an API to your phone to work out GP, your GPS coordinates, Google Maps to show you where you are, and then internal APIs to get the taxi to you with Braintree to do the payments. It's a seamless process that a number of companies come together to um, uh, to put together. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the really interesting thing about Uber is some of the acquisition channels they have for for, um, for, for, for new rides. So, for example, they take rides off of CityMapper. They also now take rides off of Google Maps. And I think that's where, that's where there's some really interesting relationships. So, in the example of buying a house, for example, a company like Zoopla or, or, or similar could actually get involved in that process in the very early stages and could start sharing that data to create those end-to-end experiences. So I entirely agree. It's interesting in that, though, um, Matt mentioned role. And uh, open banking is actually role-based. You can be in both roles. You can be... So what does that mean? You can be a bank and you can also be a third-party provider. Or both, I guess. Yeah, and you can be both. And uh, you can connect to both, Right. But you're only regulated in the role you're in. So we need to be very careful in all of these things where we start to talk about how we use customers' data that each side ma- maintains its posi- position in its role. Because we, we have a, a very uh, difficult uh, maze to go through from a liability perspective if we start blurring lines between roles that are regulated. Because I guess that brings up the spectre of GDPR as well, another big regulation that's going to hit us in the middle of next year, uh, where actually the uh, if you if a customer gives you their data, it is still their data, and that actually the use you put that data to, you have you have to explain in order to be able to use it. Yeah. So where they're similar, open banking or PSD two and GDPR have got one similarity: they're both coming from the direction of travel that the customer's data is enabled through consent. That's wonderful alignment. But there are a few things about GDPR and Payment Services Directive that 
aren't very helpful. So typically, um, you know, we have to think about uh, in GDPR things like the right to be forgotten and data minimization. And I'm just concerned that one of the great advantages that was going to be opened up by open banking was the opportunity to discover through data things about the customer that you then craft a solution onto. Uh, and uh, slightly concerned that um, the role of data privacy is going to counter the great customer outcomes promised by data science in solving and removing friction, all these wonderful things that we were dreaming of in open banking. So I think from, from a startup's perspective on this, I mean, there's, there's examples of this. It's not exactly the same, but um, in, in mobile app development, for example, if you want to get the permission from the customer to send them push notifications or to track their location, um, the best practice now that's used in almost all the major apps is to actually um, give a very clear example of the use case uh, the use case that you're working towards with that permission and ultimately the end value that you're providing to them before you actually ask them for the consent. So I think what a lot of the fintechs are going to have to do over the course of the next six months while they're gearing up for, for, for this open banking stuff is figure out how those flows work so that when they present to the customer with those requests for consent, they're very clear for the reasons why they're being asked for those, those pieces of consent. At a societal level, I think that's that's where some of the interesting challenges are in the minds of consumers that are going to experience this. So on one hand, there will be a level of communication in some form or another that is empowering choice and use of your data and ownership of your data. At the same time, there will be increased transparency around and an awareness around how that's being used and your control to stop it being used in a way that you don't want to, to for it to be used for. So I think that's going to give some interesting challenges, I think, for consumers. And I don't think on that basis that consumers will experience open banking or GDPR in any of the ways that we're talking about it. Um, basically, it's a phrase that we've all made up in the industry um, because we think about it inside out effectively. When we think about um, how consumers would experience it, it will be because they get solutions that save them some money at the end of the month when they've run out or because they get a better affordability position on a mortgage or a better credit risk position or a cheaper payment. Or These are the things that they'll experience and they'll adopt because it adds value. But what we also know about consumers is that this is money that we're talking about at the end of the day. It is different than just another consumer product. Um, and the thing that, that our members tell us constantly is that they want to feel safe. So absolutely, there's some some um, complexity for us all to work through with the um, coming together of GDPR, PSD2, uh, the CMA regulations. But at the end of the day, and I think there will be some friction in the system as we go through around consents. The feedback that we get is that people would rather have a bit of friction, at least while we're all getting used to this, if it drives safety and security. And, and it's to your point, it's how we communicate that effectively. I think uh, there's been a small amount of scepticism from the fintech community just around that specific issue, uh, just because there's a feeling and there's this sort of, um, what am I trying to come up with? There's a feeling that the banks could create an experience that is 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 so frictionful uh, that it will actually just cause consumers to drop out and not complete at all um, and then this will be used as justification to just drop the whole open banking thing altogether because customers clearly don't want it so let's all just go home um, how, how do you feel about redirection Mike, um, just like thinking about that so one of the things one of the artifacts of the delivery in the UK version you know, that's being uh, contemplated at the moment and is in the uh, spe draft specifications is that the, uh, the fintech journey is that the end customer is redirected to the bank to firstly authenticate, which means is it who they say they are? And secondly, to authorise the particular transaction in the case of a payment or access to data. Do you feel that being redirected to... A bank's browser offers your customer in the payments journey uh, a strong customer experience. So, 
first of all, I would prefer it wasn't in the browser. So I think the majority of our customers actually have mobile banking apps installed. So I think probably the open banking standard should, over the next couple of versions, move towards using those those channels purely because they're more secure, but actually because uh, they have a better customer experience. Um, I actually think that a, a referral model actually does make a lot of sense. So um, we're actually quite happy for the banks to kind of defer liability in terms of authentication and in terms of presenting the consent to the customer in a way that they're comfortable with. So again, we, we're very happy with that. I think the real concern uh, is that the way that those permissions are presented to the customer is uh, with a reasonable user experience and using terminology that doesn't frighten them off. And at the moment, um, none of the standards in the UK actually tell the banks what that terminology should look like or what that user experience should be. Uh, they're not they're not specific enough. And so there's a risk, I think, that some of the banks could end up creating consumer experiences, which ultimately leave, lead to such high levels of dropout that ultimately no, no consumers end up using the apps. It's interesting. So in the payment side... And the data side, the liability model is totally different. So in the payment side, in the first instance, if anything goes wrong with the customer's outcome, the bank steps in and gives the customer the money back and then turns to address the fintech. So one of the issues that's still being explored is if you've redirected to the bank and at their side they've authenticated the customer and they've had authorization of the transaction in the bank's own environment, how they can possibly turn around, as is assumed in PSD2, and go after the fintech for the initiation. But it's clear from the customer's perspective, they get their money back from the bank. In the data side, it's a totally different thing. Because as long as the data lands in the fintech, that's a regulated entity with the consent of the customer and the data is now at rest, in other words, it's not still moving through the API, it's crystal clear that the bank has no liability. The question I have is, when you then bring GDPR back into play, does the bank end up taking on a customer protection role through GDPR, which they managed to avoid under PSD2? And I think we're really... It would be wonderfully simpler for the end customer if they were crystal clear that when the data arrives in the fintech, when it's the data use case, that it's entirely down to the that particular entity to look after them. This company is regulated, should have the indemnity insurance in place. It's a proper business. It doesn't need to rely on the bank to be an extra layer of protection. The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Fintech innovation is changing the way we bank. And the speed we deploy new customer experiences is vital. Onboarding the right fintech partners can take months. Do you have time to lose? Introducing the Innovation Acceleration Platform from Temenos. Test fintech solutions at speed with real data straight from the core banking system. With a yearly subscription, you can begin testing the same day and create new customer experiences in no time. For more details, visit marketplace.temenos.com. Because I guess that brings up the, the next point. I think that people look at open banking and PSD2 and say, that's great. Me and my friend who st just started our new startup in our bedroom will be able to provide a, you know, a moneydashboard.com clone. We're going to work it up tonight and it'll be available tomorrow and we'll just hook into this whole thing. Yet that's not going to be the case, is it, in terms of, uh, of connecting fintechs into this into this. Um, area and I've also heard you know a fair few fintechs can well worry that the level of uh, of indemnity insurance or security you know if this becomes PCI compliance no no fintech at all is going to be able to get into this apart from the really established ones so how do we encourage innovation and those next generation propositions yeah really depends on where that where that bar's drawn is there a view at the moment as to as to what that process will be in order to get into that that registry that directory well in f data we've always campaigned for the liability and the model to be risk based uh, you know uh, 
a yodly like actor with whatever it is, $3 trillion washing through it on a daily basis, should be subject to a higher degree of uh, audit and penetration testing and other things than, you know, a two-person startup um, that has no customers and is just going through their application process, right? So, you know, there has to be some risk balance. Otherwise, we pull up the drawbridge behind the first movers and we don't get any innovation coming through from behind. So I really want to see this done in a flexible way where the liability model is clear, the traceability of who is at fault is put in place because there's a gap there at the moment which we need, which we need to work on solving. And uh, we get to a position where the end-to-end customer journey is protected, but not just the customer. The market also needs adequate protection. We need to make sure that this is sustainable, mm. that that we don't allow uh, companies into it that are not adequate and don't have fit and proper people and proper processes because they would spoil the thing for everybody. So the, the regulation here plays a very useful role in, in, in moving that forward. So... January 2018, you know, suddenly we're we're there, and it's it seems like it, it was going to be years away, and now it's like four or five months. That's just crazy. Um, where <laughs> for for listeners, Gavin's holding his head. Um, the uh, the question is like, when does that process get agreed, and when do fintechs who are listening know what process they have to go through in order to be an entity? Uh, so the FCA is actually about to open the application process in October. Okay. Uh, the licenses will be granted in January. Um, there's also a cohort of the FCA sandbox, which has started now, right. uh, where the FCA are looking to engage with many of these third parties who are going to be applying for these licenses. Um, so the long and short of it is that the FCA gets to say who gets access to these APIs. So you need to apply for an AISP or a PISP license, which is effectively a third-party license under PSD2 with the FCA. And if the FCA grant you a license with those permissions, then you have access to the APIs. If you don't apply for those permissions and you don't get the license, then you don't have access to the APIs. I think, in my opinion, there will be market actors who will sit as an intermediary layer. They will take the risks of vetting uh, third parties who could be individuals, you know, in, the, in, in their in their in their bedroom, but just hacking an app together on the, in their spare time. Um, there's already examples of these actors in market now. So we gave some examples of some of the traditional screen scrapers. Uh, there's also some more advanced APIs. So there's a company called Teller who provide um, uh, open banking APIs built on top of. Um, mobile APIs actually that power the mobile banking. Uh, so actually that's significantly more secure uh, than, than using screen scraping. But I think, I think the market will probably fill in the gaps uh, where open banking might be a little bit overblown for somebody who's just working on something in their bedroom. So one of the things is that the Financial Conduct Authority published its guidelines as to which type of actor would be regulated last week. So that's now there. Everybody can look at it. There'll be companies that play an aggregation-type role that may be regulated, and they'll be regulated for, for helping companies for whom access to open banking is ancillary. It's not their main business. It could be rental collections or some such thing was the use case that was cited. They're primarily going to be regulating the customer-facing entity that collects the consent, except by exception. Um, and that basically means that that company, if they have a chain of other custodians of data, will be responsible for making sure that the customer is made whole. They'll be the actor that's regulated, that has the insurance. If something goes wrong in their value chain, in their business model, they're responsible for it. So there's going to be a lot of smaller relatively small, maybe venture-backed or angel-backed fintechs that are going to have to get themselves properly organised into that role now. And uh, as you said, opens up on the 13th of October for application, according to the news. And uh, and then, you know, there's a lot of action going to happen in that short space of time because the companies are also going to have to figure out where they, where they need to be regulated and how to connect to things like open banking and they're going to have all the things that are out of scope of open banking still to connect to right all the credit cards all the current accounts that aren't in the nine it's a lot to think through because don't forget the regulated entity in the uk is not regulated by open banking they're regulated by the fca 
under PSD2. You might have to unpack that bit, or someone will, because I'm not sure I followed that lo- the last three sentences there. But I think, so I, I, that's the point, isn't it? Come January, the world isn't going to change. What January provides is an opportunity for a range of players, whether they enter directly um, or whether they enter through... Um, through aggregated services to test and learn in this market and I think that's what we're going to see so there is time for us to all work this out and from a from a an institutional perspective from a building society perspective what we're having to learn and all of us in the market are having to learn is not just the regulations here but how to interact differently with each other so fintechs could be um, they could be consumers they could be members they could be partners they could be competitors and and they could be all of those things at exactly the same time so the way in which we all work together the way in which we build propositions together for end users I think is as much as what we're all going to learn as well as navigating our way through three lesser ac- or four lesser acronyms. Do you want me to come back on what those things were? Yes, yes, tell me. Yeah, so um, I'm going to start the journey from the point of view of uh, the wider European fintech and banking bun fight that's been emerging. Now, the basis of it is that many of the fintechs that are in the live market, particularly in the payments use case, are unconvinced that the banks are going to provide them with the quality of proposition that will enable them to deliver their business model. So they want to persist with something that is assumed in PSD2, written in the level one text, called credential sharing. And credential sharing and screen scraping, although commonly paired, are not the same thing you could credential share through to an API. The point is that um, unless there's standards on the banking side of what gets delivered, the richness, the availability, the drive for the fintechs to feel good about this emerging thing is not there. It actually works better as an ecosystem where everybody collaborates in the governance and in the standards, and it works better if it's international and not done, you know, in in uh, Old Gate Tower, right? <laughs> that sure. these these things are. If we collaborate on a global basis to get to good standards, with proper, you know, process behind it, we'll be in a far better place. So, from our perspective, that the, there's two key things we get from PSD2. I mean, there are some concerns we have, um, but uh, there are two key things we get from PSD2. The first is that we can be a financial institution. So, up until now, if you didn't intermediate funds, you couldn't be regulated as a, a payments institution. So, that is a really key change for us. It changes how banks perceive us, and ultimately um, how we're able to communicate to, to the market as well. Uh, but the second uh, key thing is that ultimately it's showing that the regulator is okay with API, API-based interactions with the customer's account. And I think that's very key. I think that opens up possibilities, particularly with our ability to interact with some of the challenger banks who previously were being told, I mean, we worked together on, on Starling Bank and in the very early days we were talking a lot about APIs and I think some of the feedback in the very early stages from the regulator at that time was that, well, we need to kind of calm down with some of this API stuff. I think since then, a lot of the challenger banks have, have, have shifted in that because the regulator has kind of green-lighted this API stuff and I think that's very key for us as a business is that fundamentally even if we have to kind of paste over some of the cracks in the in the short term long term I think open banking is a real thing I think regardless of what happens with regulation I think competitive pressure will force banks um, to, to, to step step up to the plate and so fundamentally I think PSD2 is actually it, despite what happens uh, with its rollout has actually achieved many of its goals already actually. And Jason, you talked about the fact that this is an international audience, and we know that internationally a lot of the world is looking at um, our regulations, and, and, and as you say, it will work its way through. Um, and they're looking, and they're looking to to build on that. So uh, most recently, I, I've been in Australia. Um, all of the banks there are absolutely focused working with the fintechs, working collaboratively to look at how they can um, bring forward some of these services. And some of my good friends at Macquarie Bank only a couple of weeks ago announced that they are basically going with open banking. So for whatever 
whatever difficulty it feels like we're navigating our way through right now, we are creating something really exciting here. And that's what surprised me. I mean, I guess over the past year with 11FS, we've been over to the US. Uh, We're going over to Australia two weeks' time. We've been down in Africa, and they refer to PSD2 and the CMA APIs. And you say, well, you know that that doesn't extend here. And they're like, we know, but, you know, the competitive nature, it's it's someone is going to do that. It's going to happen. So it seems there's almost like this contagion that there's something that's happened, that it's actually being pushed forward. A regulator's got behind it. Um, And now the rest of the world is saying, well, actually, the regulator, you know, isn't there yet. But we're pointing them in your direction and saying this isn't evil. We could really do something with it. So I just want to make sure that however we do this, that we don't end up in spaghetti, right? We want to make sure we've got a commonality of how we go about this and a commonality of governance so that we have that interoperability and we all save ourselves a bunch of money and a bunch of risk issues that we can nail down by having proper standards around how we go about this and you know if you want to take your fintech mike and launch it in the us or launch it in australia or launch it in india or in germany that you don't have to kind of reinvent everything every time you go anywhere just just to add to that point uh, we recognize that the aim here is to make this as easy as possible for consumers and drive competition and choice that's all well and good but the number one priority has to be security Mm. and we all trade on trust and security and it's the one thing that could kill this whole thing dead um and that's why we have to put that first and over time we'll take friction at the appropriate rate out of the process i think the reason for using the fca for the register sort of addresses that problem so that 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 issue has kind of been delegated to the fca they're very good at doing that you have to get a license to get access so in, in some respects that 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 issue is kind of dealt with by the regulators and it's it's not something that kind of the market really needs to concern themselves with at this point it's 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 kind of solved Um, i I would agree about the need for standards as a startup it definitely reduces our costs uh, if the interface to interact with every bank is standardized Um, the cost is 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 not zero but it's also not extortionate so it's more important for us that the banks actually come to market with anything frankly um and if it's not standard we can we can we can deal with it and we're happy to invest in it um i i think the key for me also is that psd2 and open banking for that matter doesn't rule out bilateral arrangements in a situation in which uh, a technological integration that was beyond the scope of open banking and psd2 became impossible Uh, and i think there's some concern uh, in the fintech community that some elements of of psd2 particularly um, something called the rts which is the regulatory technical standard which isn't really technical and it's not really a standard but the rts neither is it published yeah exactly which isn't even published yet everybody's constrained by it but nobody knows what it actually says Um, there's some concern that that rts might when it's finally finished um, uh, cause um, f- friction when trying to arrange these kind of bilateral arrangements with banks. Because I think that brings up a really interesting point of these uh, these APIs are a living. You know, if you look at web standards, and I, I love sort of pointing back to the original sort of browser wars and how actually there was a common understanding of how HTML and CSS, everything kind of worked. But then there'd be something new come along. Someone wants to do a box. Someone wants the box over on the right-hand side. And Microsoft comes up with something and Netscape comes up with something. And then at some point, you know, you were coding for a number of different browsers and people were creating things that allowed you to do that. But, but then the W3 Standards Authority would look at the best solutions and add those in. And all of a sudden, there'd be some co- coalition on it. So almost all the most effective standards in the world, so that would include you know, HTTP, IP, HTML, CSS, almost all of those standards that have been truly successful have been ones that started with implementations. Um, so I think that you can find examples of, of, of places where there have been standards that have been created, but often they take a very long time. Uh, when they're initially released, they kind of miss the mark a little bit. So I think um, that there are already players in the bank API space. So there are Chandler banks. Uh, I mentioned a few intermediaries already who are, who are providing API solutions already. So I think the market's already providing these. I think open banking actually is, has done a pretty good job. Uh, they've, they've reached out to industry both on the banking side and on the fintech side. Um, so hopefully those standards will, will meet the mark. But in general, as, as you rightly point out, it's often implementation first that actually leads to, to real solutions. Just look at the size of a card that you put into an ATM machine. 
the world over it's the same size and shape and it's the 16 digits and you push it in you pull out the money and it works everywhere and uh it just makes it easier that you don't have to carry everywhere you go all the different sizes and shapes of card to work with every bank oh i totally agree you know if you look at how email works or how a lot of the kind of fundamentals work there needs to be this core agreement but equally uh, as far as i'm aware webhooks and the ability to send push notification stuff aren't in psd2 or the metadata around a transaction that you might connect to it and a and a receipt you know, aren't within that that transaction. So there's already things that Monzo are doing, that Starling are doing, a variety of other players are doing that aren't covered by that industry API. And it's going to be interesting to see how those things evolve and does the thing that Monzo uses for webhooks, then, you know, are, are there challenger banks that come together and suddenly the industry says that's a good solution, we're going to do it too? Or will you get fragmented uh, protocols? I think the key is that the regulation should not prevent that innovation from happening and there's some concern at the moment that that might actually be the case. So if I'm a regulated bank and I'm under PSD2, uh, according to some interpretations of what the RTS might be, uh, it might actually stop the banks uh, from interfacing with third parties who are regulated under PSD2 uh, because it's outside of scope of the regulation and therefore it's gold plating and it's giving preferential treatment. So I think it's very important that the people who are on the ground uh, in the regulators in Europe don't sort of over-constrain the market. If you want to know the challenges that this uh, comes through, look at America. The US has got, I mean, this is where the whole thing started. There are challenges emerging there really between, uh, so one element of the regulation means that um, where there's a, a financial institution, a bank, and it has a uh, connecting technology, they take on a supervising role over the technology. And then they lean over right into risk, right? When the data lands over there, they're then sort of uh, taking on risk and it's all really quite it doesn't enable it just creates bilateral agreements so you'll see you know one big bank doing a deal with that aggregation service another one do and before you know it the customer can't go anywhere to get a whole picture of anything you know there's danger lurking if you don't put in standards and i I just you know everywhere i go now trying to appeal to everybody because you're right you know in australia they're looking at it india they're looking at it the world is watching uh, and watching each other, we just need to find a method to talk to each other and sort of get the thing organised so that we can have that, uh, what did you describe as, W3, you know, let's have that discussion about what are the best practices. I don't care who comes up with the best practice. I'm not precious that it's open banking, even though I'm heavily involved in it. I just want something that really works, enables, to Mike's point, innovation. It's not about curbing that. And whenever the best thing comes up, we say, okay, well, everyone can see that works, right? Let's move to that. Let's enable that onto the side of the API, right? Let's make it better. To, to your point, though, Jason, standards are sometimes and often predetermined and set out either through regulation, but probably more often, there's a bit more chaos theory here. They, they are... Um, created because someone comes up with something that's good and they manage to overcome the network effect that drives adoption and then everybody else is forced to adopt it i think we'll see probably more of that happening so i want to i guess bring this back to the consumer in order to finish the finish the the conversation because this is all great i love this stuff so i could talk for hours i'm fascinated by how these things all connect together you know we're in the middle of uh, of tech startup, you know, London, centre of fintech, it's all shiny and lovely. Yet my relatives in Leicester, Northampton, around the around the country, they know, as far as I'm aware, nothing about open banking. And I've seen recent research that says that actually the people who are told about it are pretty scared about the, uh, the opportunity to get uh, scammed in another way by Nigerian, you know, scammers. Like, where does the consumer sit here? Are, are we going to be teaching people about open banking or are we going to be showing them those end journeys and saying sign up to this because this is what you'll get how does this work um, all of the above um, and I, I referred earlier to the fact that um, we've done a, a lot of research about this and it really depends that there isn't one size fits all here it really depends as a consumer what you're looking for from the benefits so 
if you're a consumer who's looking to make ends meet on a monthly basis, the services and the value you're going to get from open banking is going to be one thing. If you're if you if you've got a, a specific financial goal in mind, you're you're saving for a house. You're looking for something different. So I think. Um, this isn't about an ad campaign. This is about um, all of us showing safely um, propositions and working with consumers. And, and I think the, the opportunity for consumers to influence what develops here is huge. I think there's a strong comparison with something like electricity. So if you were to have invented electricity right now, uh, I think you'd struggle to sort of convince people that it was a great idea, but what people really like is something like a light bulb or a TV. And I think the key is that we need to draw people into open banking by providing them with value. So I think one of the challenges I think we might face over the course of the next you know, few months as open banking evolves and then when everything comes to market in January is I think we need, really need to figure out what those light bulbs and those televisions are uh, and that should be the way that we communicate open banking rather than talking about a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about. Unfortunately, this is a, so the audience that are listening to us probably are pretty interested in the sort of underlying nuts and bolts. Well, hopefully, I don't know. We've probably lost everybody by now anyway. So. No, but uh, I think um, the key is to kind of bring it all back down and make it something tangible that end customers you know, r- really derive value from ultimately. And uh, I think finding those use cases is, is, is really important. So I hope Curl would be an example of one of those. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that point entirely. So those organisations that understand their consumers or their members, in our case, needs, uh, are those that will be most successful. It's too easy to come up with things just because we can and because they're shiny. Like blockchain. We see lots sorry, of that. Sorry, sorry. But there's, yeah. there's, Someone's going to be able to see you. <laughs> there genuinely is so much innovation theatre. But if you truly understand the diverse needs of the population, so Anita talked about... You know, I think it's over half of the UK population are struggling to manage month to month, and that's projected to get worse. You know, as we go forward in through the economic cycle, and to understanding ways that we can do things that we couldn't do before that save them thirty pounds on their monthly income could have a massive effect. And it's those kinds of things that would drive adoption, not things that we do just because we can. So one of the key things about the regulation we mentioned it was role based. In order to face the customer in open banking, you have to be in the third-party provider role. So for any uh, bank that wishes to be avail themselves of, of open banking, they'll have to come up with their theory about how they support the very customers that Matt's talking about. I mean, the, these people that are struggling from month to month, how do you service them? What, what are their needs? How do they make payments? So um, it'd be interesting to see... Um, whether the end customer solutions that the uh, big banks bring forward are carrying with them the solutions of lots of fintech companies, the platform banking idea, or whether they go directly into here's our solution and, you know, everything channels through that. And I think that's um, be fascinating to see how the really big players unpack open banking for themselves. And I think we're clear on that, that um, we don't have all of the answers and the only way to truly service members is by collaborating. I think a lot of banks at the moment are talking about marketplaces. I think uh, the jury's still out on whether or not that will be a real thing. I think it's more likely that the marketplace will just be the app store um, or even, let's say, an advert on Twitter or what have you, uh, rather than to the bank's front end being the kind of... Um, you know, the, the, the destination that customers go to to find new products. Um, I think it, sort of just to go back to something we were talking about before, and I mentioned about the focus on data, I think some of the use cases around open banking that focus on data don't really move the needle enough um, in, in, in terms of that they're not really a step change. So there's something that previously was actually possible through screen scraping. And okay, through open banking, it's significantly more secure. And there's a better framework so that consumers know if they're using a third party that's regulated, they're, they're, you know, they're legitimately um, safe. 
Um, but I think fundamentally, it's not it's not really creating systemic change. It's not it's not going to really change the world for anyone. Um, but I think this payment space, which incidentally was the original uh, driver for PSD2. So PSD2 is the Payment Services Directive, and the original um, sort of goal with PSD2 was to create competition in the payment space. Uh, and so, and, and actually the same with open banking as well, to some extent with the Fingleton report. So um, I think. Uh, the payment space, in, in, to my mind, is going to be the place where we'll see the most sort of disruption and ultimately the most value uh, provided to end consumers and to small businesses in the UK. So I actually agree with that, and I've come from the data side of the the model, I guess. Um, the difference for the data side of the model is not that we're suddenly able to get lots of data that we couldn't get before, but it's going to be about adoption. Right? Because now... The, from January, no bank will be able to have in their terms and conditions that you can't share your credentials. For, I mean, it, it, it is for greater, uh, you know, for, for whatever side of the coin you come from, we have an opportunity for mass market adoption where hitherto it was dampened down, it was a struggle. You know, we've been fighting over a small number of customers, now there's the entire market. So I think we can all agree that it's actually going to be an exciting time. I'm fascinated to see if there are unintended consequences, whether identity becomes a big thing, whether loyalty and rewards are suddenly you know, completely transformed, and how new payment rails could arguably uh, disintermediate Visa, MasterCard, and you know, everyone else in that, that space. It's going to be, I think, quite a, a fascinating time. So I think that that's the key for open banking is that it's providing it's providing a, a, a capability for consumers to connect their bank account to whichever networks, whichever apps they, they, they want to connect to. And that is a watershed moment, actually, in finance. Giving consumers that autonomy is, is, is really a big deal. Um, and so I think it's allowing third parties like us to build a payments network, which is designed to serve the needs of retailers and consumers rather than serve the needs of banks. And this has really been the first time in history that coming up with that proposition has been possible. I don't think we'd have been able to go into the banks and sell that proposition somehow. Uh, but thanks to open banking, it's been possible for us to actually effectively uh, create a business case around that proposition, to raise money, uh, build a team and, and come to market with, with, with something. So. Well, on that note, I'm going to call this to a close. Thanks, guys, for uh, for joining me. Uh, Anita, where can can people find out more about what you guys are doing in this sort of innovation open banking space? Well, feel free to contact um, Matt Cox or myself, Anita Kimber, directly or just contact us through the Nationwide website. But there's lots of information there and we're more than happy to share. Great. And Mike? Uh, you can find Curl at paywithcurl.com. Or find me on Twitter, I'm MikeKelly85, or the company is just at PayWithCurl. And who are you looking for in, in terms of people to, to contact you? So we're looking to engage with uh, business decision makers and banks. So we want to have commercial discussions with banks about revenue shares, about new credit products that we want to offer. Um, we're not massively interested in doing proof of concepts with innovation departments. That's sort of... Uh, <laughs> Ouch! Yeah, sorry. Um, uh, and, and we're also, I mean, obviously very interested to talk to anybody with experience in payments, uh, particularly around risk and compliance. Great. Matt? I think listening to these guys talk has been kind of hugely valuable because everybody has a different perspective everybody brings something slightly different to the debate um there are lots of risks and opportunities but i i think the power is where we can work together and do things that we're all best placed to, to, to provide the services that we're good at great gavin well uh the financial data and technology association uh, remains uh in a position of trying to lead the coordination of effort to move to effective standards so if you want to talk about opening up the regulation, dealing with the liability, figuring out in your market how it can be solved. Um, we're working with partners across the world in that, and uh, you can find us in fdata.org.uk. Well, thank you. I'm Jason Bates. This is 11FS. Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast, review us on iTunes, and if you think we're worth it, a five-star review always goes down well. We love reading those re reviews. Thanks, and that's all for now. Mm -hmm.